Let's open our Bibles, and we're going to be in 2 Chronicles 32 this morning. 2 Chronicles 32. Second Chronicles 32. We're going to look at an interesting story and uh, provide a, a, an application uh, different than the setting that the story takes place, but one I think you will find practical and helpful to you. And to get an idea of uh, where this uh, lesson is going, let's read the first eight verses. I'll read it out loud and you can follow along. Starting in verse number one, Second Chronicles 32, the Bible says, after these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city. And they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Also he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and repaired Mela and the city of David and made arts and shields in abundance. And he set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city and spake comfortably to them, saying, Be strong and courageous, be not afraid, nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. For there be more with us than with him." With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now pay attention to that last sentence there in verse 8. The Bible says the people rested themselves in the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And the question I want you to consider this morning is this. Was that legitimate? Was it legitimate for the people of Judah, Jerusalem, to rest themselves, to put their confidence in what a man had told them? Now you think about all of the bad scenarios, the bad uh, examples that we maybe could think of, of times where people rested themselves in the words of a man. And a lot of people do, don't they? I mean, they put all their stock in everything right now. You're seeing it before your eyes because it's election season. So I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just saying the fact is that no matter who your uh, dog in the fight is, you have people who are so devoted to everything that person believes and really believe that everything about life will change for the better if we can just get this guy elected. And some of the ones who follow different candidates do come across pretty extreme in their following of what a man has said. It's true not only in the political world, it's true in the religious world. Think about different ones who have, have uh, led avid, um, either legitimate cults or cult-like followings from people because of all the things that they said. People who can 
lead their group out to a hillside in California to wait for the Lord Jesus to come back when he wasn't coming back that day. Well, what happened there? People rested themselves in the words of a man. It can be all sorts of different scenarios. You think about the um, kind of overlaps, political and religious, but the terrorist activity in this world. And what people will do, giving up their own lives because somebody has told them that in the afterlife it will be even better if they will just go out and strap a bomb to themselves and blow somebody up. That's really an example, is it not, of people trusting in what somebody has said. It might not be that extreme, but we put a lot of confidence in what a friend says or, or maybe on a sports team and what the coach says. And sometimes they'll say about dedication to a coach, man, his players love him so much that they'll run through a wall for him. That's not comfortable, okay, running through a wall. If you've ever tried it, you know. I've never tried it, but I've observed it. And it's funny if you're not the guy doing it. But the uh, point being that people can do extreme things based on what somebody else has said. So I think it's at least a legitimate question to ask ourselves, was it okay that the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah? Well, let's consider what the Bible says. In one sense, consider what Jeremiah 17.5 says. It says, Cursed is the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. Does that seem to make it uh, positive or negative that people would rest themselves upon the words of a man? It makes it pretty negative. Now, having considered all those different negative examples, I hope you understand and you're probably thinking, um, it seems like it was actually probably okay. And if that's the way you're trending in your thinking, regardless of what I've already said, you are correct. I believe it was absolutely appropriate for them to rest upon Hezekiah in this case. But here is the deal. It was only legitimate for them to rest themselves, trust upon what a man had said, if what the man had said was true. Right? Okay, let's consider what he says. Verse 7, be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, for all the multitude that is. So were there a lot of people with the king of Assyria or just a few? There were a lot. It was described as a multitude. Um, I think in another passage it tells us the exact number, but I, and, and maybe it does here and I've missed it. There's a lot of people. For there is with us... And with him. Was that part true? Well, again, I don't know the exact numbers that were going on here. But I can tell you that if you have, oh, let's say 300 trained soldiers versus 300 average unarmed citizens, that it might be the same number, but one is definitely outnumbering the other. Doesn't that make sense? Okay. Well, that's what's going on here. Um, I was really pretty good at math growing up, but I'm just going to confess to you that when I was a kid, there was one part of math in elementary school that I really struggled with. It was the greater than and less than signs. Man, those tripped me up. And I remember those elementary teachers trying to explain it in a way that I could remember. And that you know what I'm talking about? So you had like that sign, 
and that sign. And I'm like, well, doesn't it kind of, can't you just read it greater than and just start on whichever side you want? You know, do I have to read left to right? Can I go right to left? There's always one greater than the other. There's always one less than the other. So how, it just really confused me, okay? Still, I have to think hard about it. Still, still, I use the little hint that they gave me, which I don't think actually has helped, but they would say, well, just remember, you put the open end towards the bigger one because you want to gobble that up, you know? So I'm embarrassed to say that as a 46-year-old man, if I look at a greater than or less than sign, I read it as this one gobbles up the little one, okay? So, I mean, that's just kind of how I think about it. Um, it's confusing. So let's think about it. He says here in this verse, there will be more with us than with him. So he's saying, here's us over here, here's him over there, and that's greater. So us is greater than him. Now, on the superficial, on the human level, was that true? It was not true. But verse 8 changes everything, doesn't it? Because the Bible says, with him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. That changes the whole equation, doesn't it? It's not we are greater than him. It's God is greater than him. And it was then based upon that truth that the Bible says the people rested themselves in the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So was it legitimate for them to rest in those words? It was. And here's why. It is good to rest in the words of a man if the words of a man help you to rest in God. That's a good thing. And I think that's very important for us to learn that because we may not be, as men, the king of a country, but we are leaders of a family, of a church, of some other uh, group of people. And I believe that it is appropriate for those who follow us to be able to rest in what we say, but only so if what we say would cause them to rest in what God has said and who God is. I kind of think about it like this. I'm married. My wife's overdoing the ladies' session right now. And uh, I'm all for getting a hug from my wife. And I'm, of course, a lot bigger than my wife. So my wife can come and she can stand there and lean upon me and hug me and I can hug her and that's great. But even though I'm a lot bigger than my wife and even though I am stronger physically than my wife, if she were to lean upon me for a long period of time while I am standing up, it's going to start wearing me out. You know what I mean? Just a, a little simple scenario like that. You're just going to get tired of somebody leaning on you. Some of you uh, dads have younger kids, and you know that even though they are small, 
If they lean on you long enough, you start wearing out. You're like, man, I got to sit down. I am totally fine with having my wife lean upon me, and that is all a good thing. But I'll tell you what's even better. Let's go over to the couch. And I'm going to sit down in the corner of that couch and lean back against the back and lean against the side, and she can lean against me. And you know what? She can stay there all day long if she wants to. Why? Because though she is leaning upon me, more importantly in this scenario, I am leaning upon a support for me. And that is what Hezekiah was doing. Hezekiah was not being uh, ridiculous in his expectations. He was trying to settle the people down. But he knew if in settling the people down with the threat of this enemy coming against him, all that he had to go with was his ability or his strength or his capability of defeating that army, then it was going to fall short. But in this particular case, he says, hey, there's more with us than with them because they have an arm of flesh, but we have the ultimate couch. We have the Lord, our God, to help us and to fight our battles. And so when the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah, they were actually resting themselves upon God to do for them what they were not able to do for themselves. Now, can you imagine if that actually happened at your home? You look through the blinds one day and say, oh, there's that pesky Assyrian army again. Here they come. They're always coming down our street. They're always surrounding our house. They're always beating on our door, saying they're going to huff and puff and blow our house down. And here they are again. I wish they would just bother somebody else, you know. Go to Glendale or something like that. Just get out of here. But there they are. And so you gather the family and say, with them is an arm of flesh. but with a, I mean, that's not going to happen, is it? If that's happening in your life, I would love to sit down for a chat and hear about it. But I've not heard on the news that that's happening to anybody, so I don't think it is. But aren't there situations that happen in our lives and happen in our family's life where it might as well be the Assyrian army coming against us? I mean, we have health issues that we face. We have financial issues that we face. We have any number of things that you cannot predict in life, and they come up, family issues that we face. And we have those that are looking to us to provide some leadership and to provide some help. And I'm telling you that the only way you can really provide good help, the best help, is if you will not just say, lean upon me because I'm strong enough to say lean upon me because I'm leaning upon the Lord. And that is a huge difference between those two thoughts. You provide rest by relentlessly clinging to God's promises. So let's think about this in the story of Hezekiah for a moment. What made him think that God was going to do anything to help them out? I mean, they were faced with the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army had already overrun their brothers up in the northern part of the country. The ten tribes of Israel, they had already taken care of them. That was part of God's people too, right? What made Hezekiah think that God was going to do anything to help them out? Well, let me 
just mention a couple of scriptures that might have encouraged him in that direction. Back in 2 Chronicles 15 and verse 2, when the man Asa was king, a prophet came to meet him and said, The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So this prophet said to Asa, the Lord's with you while you will be with him. That's a principle that remains true to this day. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. So was Hezekiah with God? He was. You can read the life of Hezekiah and find out who was very devout. He had been very serious for the Lord. He had been very careful to make sure that he pleased the Lord in his life. So it was reasonable based on the principle of 2 Chronicles 15.2 that if he was with God, that God was with him. So it was more than just saying, well, yes, I know the Lord. All of us probably in here today could say that and that we may or may not have God's full protection in every regard that we need it. But Hezekiah was serious and he followed the Lord. And so when he said, God is with us, he knew it was true because he was with God. So I think that would be part of the reasoning. Let me read to you another verse. Isaiah is a companion passage. There are several chapters in Isaiah that overlap with the story in 2 Chronicles. And one of those chapters is, uh, it's kind of similar, is in uh, Isaiah 31, verse 5, where through the prophet Isaiah, there was a prophecy from God that went like this. As birds flying... So will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also he will deliver it, and passing over he will preserve it. Now that's a pretty good promise for Hezekiah to cling to, don't you think? And Isaiah was a contemporary of Hezekiah, so Hezekiah probably had heard Isaiah make this prophecy about defending the nation of Israel and defending Jerusalem in particular. And that's where they were. They were in Jerusalem. Now, it's not an, it wasn't a blanket statement that Jerusalem would never fall to any conquering foe, but it was a statement that God was looking out for Jerusalem. So that seems like a pretty good indicator that God could help them out in this situation. So if we put 2 Chronicles 15 to, Together with Isaiah 31, I think we have a, um, a, a pretty good start, but it gets even better. In Isaiah chapter 38, the Bible explains to us that right in the middle of this time when the Assyrian army was coming and being a threat to Jerusalem, that Hezekiah became very sick. The Bible records for us there, and in 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 15, that Hezekiah was so desperate because Isaiah had come to him and basically said, put your house in order because you're going to die. The Bible records that Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and cried out to God for help. One of the reasons I think that he did so was because he did not have an heir. At the end of the story, you find out that God promises Hezekiah 15 more years of life when Hezekiah dies, his son Manasseh is 12, which means he had not yet been born when Hezekiah was sick. And he needed an heir for the kingly line to go on. That's one part of it. But Hezekiah's prayer and desperation with God was so intense that 
before Isaiah even got out of the courtyard, God spoke to Isaiah, turned him around, sent him back into Hezekiah, and this is what God said, go and say to Hezekiah, thus saith the Lord God, the God, Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will add unto thy days 15 years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Okay, that takes care of it, doesn't it? So when Hezekiah says, there's more with us than with them, if he had not said that, he would have been not believing what God had told him. So he believed God. And he said, with them is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And so he went and he told the people. He said, God is going to take care of it. He had confidence and they rested upon what he said because he had the wisdom to rest upon what God had said in his life. And the main gist of what I want to communicate to you guys today is simply this. You have got to know what God has said so that you can rest upon it so that the people that are looking to you can rest upon what you say. Whether that's wife or children or extended family or other friends or church or whoever's looking. There are people that are looking to you for some indication of, of, of what to do, of where to head. And if you have the confidence in what God has said, then you can provide the confidence to those who are listening to you. And that's what you should do, and that's what all of us should do. You provide rest by relentlessly clinging to the promises of God. Now, with that in mind, I do want to take a look at a few other details in this story and consider uh, four steps that Hezekiah took in his leadership. We won't spend a lot of time with these. Let me just go through these uh, briefly. Number one, in Hezekiah's leadership, notice that he took counsel. He took counsel. Verses 2 and 3 said, And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come, and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel. So I'm not making this up, am I? That's exactly what it says. He took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. Um, counsel is important. It can sometimes feel as a man like, hey, I'm a man, I'm just going to figure this out on my own. And there is a certain sense where there are times in life where you just have to get yourself alone with God and pray and be studying and it might not take a day, it might take more than a day, it might take weeks, it might take a while to come to a conclusion about a situation where you can help your family. But there is that sense of personal responsibility, but it does not mean that we should never take advantage of the opportunity of counsel from other people. Counsel is a good thing. There are men who have trusted God before and saw how it turned out that we can talk to and get counsel from to get an idea how it will turn out for us. Does that make sense? And so it is wise for us to take a look and get good counsel. Now, can I just say this, that the key to good counsel is who you ask. 
Now, nobody is perfect, and nobody's always going to give you perfect counsel, but if you're asking people whose lives in and of themselves are not in order, are, not mess, are messed up in some regard, then you're not going to get good counsel. Um, I'm glad the, the boys and the teens, you guys are in here, and that's great. But I'm just going to tell you that sometimes one of the errors that young people make is counsel and get the opinion of people who really have no idea what they're talking about. So we say, figure out what to do. Okay, I'm going to go ask my friend. Well, how's your friend's life? A complete and utter mess. Why ask them? Ask somebody who maybe looks like they have it together. Ask somebody who knows the Lord. Uh, I put down two characteristics of somebody to get counsel from that I think are important. Ask those who believe God about things. If the deal is you want people to believe in you because you believe God and you're going to get counsel, then talk to people who also believe God. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah. That God can do whatever it is you need God to do, whatever it is you need God to take care of. So if you are, we had this parenting seminar yesterday, if you're wanting help with your family, then find somebody that it's obvious has believed God about their family. And, and, and that just makes sense, I think. So find people who have believed God. Find people who are under authority. Because that's really what we're talking about here, is I'm in leadership over others. They're going to trust me, but I'm not the end of this authority chain. My authority is God himself, so I'm going to God. So I'm keeping myself in the right place in authority. So if I talk to people who are rebellious in their spirit, they're not staying in authority, then they're not going to give you good advice. So that's one way to look at it. Now, I will say this. There is the traditional concept of getting counsel, and I think there is also um, secondhand counsel. In other words, you've got eyes, you've got ears, you can observe things. Sometimes you don't need to ask, how did this turn out, because you can see how it turned out. For uh, several years, we traveled quite a bit with a fifth-wheel travel trailer. I am not a predict particularly handy person. I'm not good at fixing things. Estevan asked for my counsel yesterday about a plumbing issue. And my counsel was talk to somebody who has an idea of what they're talking about, because I don't know. My only counsel I could give is make sure the water's turned off before you start. Okay. That's about as far as I can get. So when we were going to get an RV, and we were going to live in an RV, I had many evangelist friends who had already been there and done that. So there were a couple that I asked counsel of. Because in my estimation, it looked like things had gone well for them. And then there were some that I noticed repeatedly had problems with their RV. I did not ask them any questions. But I did take note of some of the decisions they had made, and I did not make those decisions. Um, so I went with a trailer size that matched the truck ability to pull it. That was a big one. And one of the big things I went for were G-rated tires. Because I did not want to be the guy on the side of the road with a blown out tire. 
And I covered my tires when they sat in the sun for a long period of time and things like that. And by the grace of God, I never in all those years had a blowout on the road. And my axle fell apart, so that did cause us trouble too. But I never lost a tire out of it. We replaced them on our time and on our schedule. Okay. So I didn't avoid all the problems, but I did avoid a lot of problems by taking it that way. So I'm just saying you can look around in life and you can not only take counsel specifically one-on-one with somebody, but you can also get counsel by observing how it has gone with others. So number one, he took counsel. Number two, he was careful not to give the enemy an advantage. Look at verse number four. Well, verse three, we saw what the counsel was. We're going to stop the waters. And verse four, so there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, and doesn't this make sense? Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So they are out there, they're in their walled city, but they look out there and they say, if those armies approach closer, they're going to get right up to the brink of the walls and they are going to have water available. And if they have water, they can sustain a siege of us for long periods of time. And so they went out and they destroyed the water sources for them and made it so that they would not have an easy time. That was smart. That was a good idea. Um, why, was, why was that? Because they were not going to be able to maintain that siege. Okay. Now, you know that there, we have an enemy as well. Our enemy is not the Assyrians, though uh, politically, where the Assyrians are from, probably a lot of enemies yeah. over there still yeah. too. But that's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is, of course, the devil. And furthermore, it's not just the devil. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil are our three enemies. But a lot of times we make wrong choices. We make bad mistakes because we allow an advantage of the devil or the world or our flesh over us. So we know that our flesh has a particular weak spot, and yet we cater to that. As Romans says, we make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We see the world system around us and we realize that it affects our thinking and we realize that it could affect our family's thinking, but we continue to allow the world an open opportunity to communicate their philosophy and their thinking to us all the time without regulating that in some way through what happens in our homes. We see the devil and how he tries to tempt us in different ways, and yet we walk down those paths of temptation knowing that once we pass a certain point, we are not going to be able to say no any longer. None of those things are wise. We've been in this long enough to know where we fail most often. So don't give an advantage to those areas where you know that you fail. So he was careful not to give the enemy an advantage. The other thing that he told them, besides the water, he went to the people and basically said, now when these guys get to the wall, they're going to be talking to you. And you don't listen to what they say. You don't listen to them at all because here's what they're going to say, and I'm just going to tell you this now, so when you hear it, you'll know that's what I told you. So don't talk 
back to them. I don't mean like don't back talk. He meant literally do not communicate with them. Now, have you ever been around somebody where you just cannot win the argument? Whatever uh, reason or excuse or anything you can come up with in the argument, it can easily be answered right back to you. That, that happens a lot with some people. And that's what Hezekiah was trying to avoid. Don't even get into a contest with them. Don't even talk to them. Were the Assyrians right? No, they were wrong. But he said, I don't even want you to go down that road. So he was careful not to give the enemy an advantage. Number three, he communicated with the people. We read verses 7 and 8 that tells us what he said. But did you know how it was introduced to us in verse number 6? He set the captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city and spake comfortably to them, saying. Now, guys, here's the deal. Sometimes we know we're trusting in the Lord and we know what the right thing is to do. Either, number one, we never communicate that to those following us, or number two, the way we communicate it could be described by the word used here, comfortably. We are coarse, we are gruff, we are rough. We say good things sometimes in bad ways, where we say, come on, have a little confidence in the Lord. Well, that'll rally the troops, right? You know, to go at it like that? I don't think so. So we have to learn, and it's an ongoing process for many of us as men, that it is important to communicate. Just because you've thought it does not mean that your wife knows it. Does not mean that your kids know it. You actually have to say it out loud. And I, and, right. Okay, and, and if you've ever heard this before, it's probably because your wife has told this to you. <laughs> I can't read your mind. What are you thinking? Um, and that's bothersome, isn't it? I mean, I've been married a long time. I don't understand why she can't. She should have this figured out by now. But I'm just being facetious. Uh, truly, I cannot read our minds. We have to talk. And when we do, it ought to be comfortably. And then let me mention the last thing here. He took counsel. He was careful not to give the enemy advantage. He communicated, and he came to God. The accusation that Sennacherib made here at the end of verse 15, he said, look, we've come against all sorts of other countries. And they said the same thing that you said. They said their gods would protect them. And he concluded by saying this, how much less shall your God deliver you out of mine hand? Uh, okay. Now you have a couple of choices. Thank you. My phone was wanting to know what I wanted to ask you. Um, somebody says that about God you remember the old The Incredible Hulk <laughs> old Bruce Banner <clears throat> bursting through and that's the feeling that you get inside of like oh yeah well I'll show you what God can do and the danger is that we're going to show them what we can do right. which is not much we are not the Incredible Hulk. But very thankfully, that is not what Hezekiah did. We won't go there, but you could look sometime at uh, 2 Corinthians 19 is the chapter. 
God had already promised Hezekiah it was going to work out. He wasn't going to let the Assyrians overrun them and all that kind of stuff. But when the general says this to him and to the city, he didn't take it for granted. He went back to God and once again poured his heart out to God and said, God, you said this is what you would do. And he tied God up, as it were, with God's very promises. And that's what we're supposed to do. Philippians 4.6 says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the word supplication means to bind. It means to tie up. It means to basically go to God and remind him of his promises. Now, I don't mean God forgets. But God wants you to come to him and tell him, this is why I'm trusting in you, so please act. And I'm telling you that if you will do that and go to God for your needs, then you'll really be resting upon the Lord. And if you're resting upon the Lord, then it will be totally legit for people to rest upon you as well.